0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Starting Small Music Podcast. I'm your host, Justin McCormick, and today we have a very special guest with us. We have three-time ACM nominee for Musician of the Year and guitarist for Kenny Chesney, Danny Rader. You're going to hear the stories of not only Danny touring with Kenny, but also playing guitar on some of Kenny's iconic records. You'll also hear the stories of Danny's time playing in Keith Urban's band. Danny has played on over 62 number one songs. He has a great story for you guys to hear. I hope you enjoy, and we'll see you at the end. How you doing today, Danny? Good. Fantastic. Awesome. Man? The- I'm doing great. So uh, getting right in your story, you grew up in Panama City, Florida. And uh, what was your childhood like?
1: You know, it was it was interesting. Uh, we did about we did about 200 shows a year with my family band. We had a, an Opry show down there. And so I didn't really know a whole lot outside of, of that. You know, I went to public school and, and did that. But we did a lot of traveling with the family on occasion. But mostly we did like shows in our, our our family's theater down there. We had about a thousand seat theater and uh, did 200 shows a year. And and in addition to our family shows, which had aunts, uncles, grandma, grandpa, cousins, all all singing and playing stuff. Uh, my granddad would promote Grand Ole Opry type artists. So oh, we would have 10 or 12 of those shows throughout the years, uh, mostly in the wintertime when the snowbirds were down, he would pr- promote those shows. And so throughout the years, we had everybody from you know, Glenn Campbell to uh, Tammy Wynette, you know, Oak Ridge Boys, uh, Randy Travis, you you name it. It was just a, a much shorter list of artists that didn't come through than those that did. Now, you know, I'm sure cool opportunity to get to watch that firsthand, you know, as a kiddo growing up.
0: For sure, and I'm 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 assuming that uh, growing up in a musical family like that, uh, you probably were you able to pick any of these big musicians' brains as they came into town? I'm sure, like you already loving music yourself, did you get any advice from these people when they're coming into town?
1: Certainly, once I got old enough to really be kind of like hip to the thing, and 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 realize that this is kind of what I wanted to do with my life, you know, once I got into my teenage years, uh, I would always kind of sign up and, and be the first to go up and want to help get them set up and get their monitors set up and plugged in and just anything I could do to be around it, get to kind of see how they interacted with each other and, and how they ran a sound check and all those little things that I was just kind of curious about, like, what's it like, you know, at that level. yeah. And uh, so it's pretty cool to get a front front row seat. So, and, and there's a handful of musicians that came through that played with artists like Porter Wagner. You know, I, I the first guy that comes to mind is a piano player named Gordon Moat he came through and he was playing with Porter and this is before I had moved to town and I met him very briefly and said, oh, I'm going to move up to Nashville soon. And, and he was super encouraging and super kind. And said, well, yeah, hit me up when you do. And, um, and I don't know if you are familiar with Gordon or not. He's blind. He's been blind his, his entire life. Oh, wow. And so he's just a brilliant piano player that, that is all of his other senses are just so heightened and he's just a next level genius kind of guy. But i hadn't seen him in months and then i was doing some engineering work on a project in town once i got to nashville just kind of engineering some overdubs for a producer and uh, he had gordon coming in to do some some keyboard overdubs and the second gordon walked in the door I, I all i said was hi gordon and he recognized my voice immediately he goes oh danny raider from panama city florida how you doing oh boy how's your family and I was just like blown away at that, you know, but there was a few of those situations where I would meet somebody down there and then run into them once I got back up to town. And it was just always really cool to make that connection and um, have a, have a pretty good little jumping off point. For sure. Now you actually
0: mm-hmm. picked up drums at age of two, which you probably don't even remember the first time you sat down at the drum set. Do you, do your parent did your parents tell you like uh, what made them get you a drum set first?
1: Well, our whole family played and sang. And so it was all around. It wasn't even like they went out and, got me a drum set at two. I just sat down at the drum set that was on the stage, you know, or, or in the studio. My dad ran a studio too. So I'm sure there were times at that point where he would, you know, I, 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 there's videos of it. I don't have as vivid memories of it, but there were definitely times when he would just sit me on his lap and like take my hands and help me kind of play it. The boom, 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 kind of a groove. And so I think from such a young age, there was just some, some muscle memory that was starting to develop there and just kind of getting getting the arms and the muscles used to those motions. And, and then I kind of just took it and ran with it eventually down the road.
0: <laughs> now, not only playing a lot of music from a young age, who were some of the first artists or albums that kind of stick out in memory to you from your childhood that kind of really got you interested in music?
1: Oh, man. Certainly, Like m- much of my early childhood was very old school country stuff. Uh, it was George Strait, Merle Haggard, Conway Twitty, Tammy Wynette. Uh, Oak Ridge Boys a lot of that kind of stuff and then I remember once I got to like teenage years and I really started learning guitar and diving into to guitar voicings and how to how to play that I remember being really uh, impressed and influenced by like the Eagles records Bread, Jim Croce James Taylor some of those really intricate kind of chords where you could really hear the voicings that they were playing and some of that stuff and I really was moved by that and then eventually down the road of course Tom Petty and uh, the Beatles and kind of can't, can't avoid that stuff and can't deny what great records this were.
0: <laughs> and, uh, I mean, you mentioned Glenn Campbell too. I mean, I think that, uh, he doesn't get the credit for that he deserves. I think he's one of the greatest guitar players of all time. And especially like the people that like the harder rock stuff. If, if you would have just turned up the drive on his amp, he would have, he would have been able to play with any of those guys, you know?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And most people don't realize how many records he played on before he even became a solo artist of his own accord you know all those right. wrecking crew stuff movie soundtracks surf records beach boys records he played on so many of those things and sang so many background parts before he even became glenn campbell the artist right you know like it, the, the two careers either one by themselves would have been phenomenal but to have had both of those careers it was like Get out of here. <laughs> Unheard of for sure. <laughs> now,
0: in 2004 you made the decision to move to Nashville. What was that decision like? Uh, was it kind of a big deal
1: to leave the family band or were they encouraging you to go to Nashville? You know, they were actually really encouraging. I never had any pushback from anybody. I think they all knew and could see that that was where I wanted to go and and I always wanted to come to Nashville. I had no desire to really go to LA or New York or any of the other kind of music industry cities just cuz I had such a deep love for country music, especially that it was always going to be Nashville for me. Uh, And so now they were super supportive. I I had kind of gotten to a point where uh, I was doing a lot of local session work back home at that point. I'd I'd work in a studio. There were three or four project studios around within like an hour and a half radius of where I lived in Panama City that I could go track. And a lot of those would do like one record a week or so. They kind of track on one day cut vocals in a day and then spend a couple of days mixing and and then kind of do that same thing each week, you know, when a, a a different artist would be coming through. So I had um done a lot of work down there on that stuff, but had just kind of gotten to a point where I really wanted to kind of explore the space a little bit and get get outside and and just see if I could make it in Nashville, you know. And sure. and so we my wife and I we had gotten married back home and we got to a point where I had finished Uh, We had actually both finished our uh, two year degrees at community college back home. So we moved to Nashville and she finished her schooling at Belmont. And I just hit the pavement when we got to town and started trying to find work as a guitar player.
0: (laughs) Now, did you have a preference at that time when you first moved, if you wanted to do session work opposed to going on the road or were you just say anything that comes my way, I'm going to take it.
1: You know, my first love was session work. If, if I would have had a, a full plate of session work, I would have never taken a road gig. Because uh, that was definitely what I moved to town wanting to do on my first love. Uh, but I did not realize before I moved to town what a long list of people it was trying to get that work. <laughs> and so I kind of took uh, took a road gig or two out of necessity, just to keep the lights on until I could really get the session thing happening. And what I found was that I, I kind of had moved to town at an interesting time in that before I had moved to town back in like the nineties, up to about 2000, 2005, uh, there was a very distinct line between road players and session players. And you, you either did one or the other, but guys really didn't do much of, of, of both. Yeah. Right about the time that I moved to town, uh, I think part of it had to do with the amount of session work kind of coming down a little bit. There wasn't, there weren't quite as many artists signed, And so there wasn't quite as much session work. So it was kind of a time when a lot of the session players would take one road gig. And so they would do their sessions, but they might also go out and tour with Vince Gill and do 50 shows a year with him, or they'd go out and do, you know, 50 shows a year with Tim McGraw or whatever he had, you know? And so there was kind of like the blurring of the lines between session and, and, and road work. And so I think I kind of benefited from that being able to, kind of well, not brand myself but really just get people used to the fact that hey i can entertain and play really well on stage and and do this thing but i also spend a lot of time with headphones on it and i can do records too yeah so i you know like i said i, I took the first gig or two uh, just to keep the lights on and I, I tour with jason aldean for about a year and a half early on in his career uh, but what I found is that like, as, as I, you know, went from that gig to um, I played with Leanne rhymes for about a year. Then I spent a few years with Gretchen Wilson and then I eventually ended up out with Keith Urban yeah. uh, before landing here with, with Kenny Chesney. But each time I felt like as my road gigs were kind of increasing in, in status and whatever, you know, my session work was also kind of growing right alongside it. So I had these kind of two as these two facets of my career that were kind of, climbing at the same time and, and adjusting on the fly. And it was kind of really, really worked out to be able to have time at home still. You know, the gigs that I ended up on weren't too busy, you know, the, so that I still had plenty of time to do the session thing and get that off the ground, you know.
0: I hope you guys are enjoying this week's episode following Danny's journey in music. And I'd like to take a pause to thank this week's midbreak sponsor, Sun Heist. At Sun Heist, they believe that life is short and adventure is necessary. So that's why they really want you to have a pair of sunglasses that makes you look and feel good. I personally wear Sun Heist sunglasses. I have their Alder Matte Black pair, and I love wearing them if I'm just going to the beach or when I'm traveling. And the best part is, every time you buy a pair of Sun Heist, a tree will be planted by One Tree Planted, a nonprofit organization focused on boosting the environment through global reforestation. So check them out for yourself. Go grab a new pair of sunglasses at sunheist.com. Now enjoy the rest of the episode. And I think that you moved to town at a really cool period too, because just around, around that time is when, uh, Big and rich just released "Sable Horse Riding Cowboy." Jason Aldean was starting to do the rock stuff, and you kind of were coming into town when the lines were starting to blur between rock and country, too. How was that for you as a guitarist?
1: You know, it was an interesting thing to kind of watch and also be somewhat of a participant in. Um, you know, it, it's it's funny because most of my most of my session work has been in the acoustic chair, so I do acoustic guitar, banjo mandolin, bouzouki, all kinds of random string things like that. Yeah, And uh, so a lot of, lot of the records, probably, I don't know, 60, 70% of the records that I had played on were in that chair. But a lot of times when I'd go out to play on the road, I was playing mostly electric because you end up needing the two electrics, the power and that kind of thing. It, it, people want to kind of rock out the live show a little more. And so I was kind of seeing it from both, both sides, but it also gave me a, a, a unique perspective on you know trying to take off the session guy hat and put on the road guy hat and and realize that what we're doing for the record may not be the thing that needs to be represented live yeah same time it's right for the record if you just did what we do live on the recording it it wouldn't necessarily be the the best way to go about for country radio and and making things sound like they need to sound for the, the sake of a record. And so I you really kind of learned how to approach them both completely as, as different pieces and different animals. For you sure. Know? Now in 2010, uh, you,
0: like you said, you joined Keith Urban's band. How did you and Keith first meet?
1: I actually, um, knew all of the band guys over there before I had met Keith. Um, I, I knew all of them and they kind of had a need for a guy that did what I do. And, uh, and to Keith's credit he actually trusted trusted the band guys and so I was actually already hired before I even played a note of music with him you know I uh, yeah yeah there's no audition or anything with that one it was just I, I had done enough work with the other band guys and they all just basically said to Keith you know when they were talking it up and said oh no Raiders Raiders the guy he'll he'll kill it and so he was like all right great let's bring him in you know and so I went by the studio when he was cutting one day just to meet him and kind of put a put a face with the name and the reputation and whatnot and uh, and it was super cool and and it was like all right well you got the gig so don't worry about that you know and and then it was like everything just kind of like settled down it was it was great yeah we,
0: we had uh nathan barlow on the show a few weeks ago and he said when he joined keith's band first. that uh <laughs> yeah for sure crazy musician yeah. but the first thing he said when he got introduced to the band was that he was just joining a rock and roll band did you have that same feeling
1: yeah. You know, it was interesting how uh, just, it really interesting to see how keys thing has evolved over the years for sure. Cause when I, when I started in that band, for example, I was doing uh, keys and B3 type stuff. I was I actually had a full keyboard rig with two keyboards and a B3 and, mm-hmm. and I did that on like half the night when I first started out there. And then a good chunk of the rest of the stuff I was doing acoustic E, ganjo, mandolin type stuff and electric on four or five songs maybe. Uh, But over time, as the as the personnel evolved and as Keith evolved musically, it had it had evolved away from that till the point that it was basically Keith and I on guitars and drums and bass until we added Nathan, you know, and then Nathan kind of brought the whole phantom craziness in. (laughs) (laughs) Now, uh,
0: when you were on the road with Keith there was like seven different versions of somewhere in my car that were released. Did you guys do the same version every night or was it like, okay, tonight you're starting this off on the piano or
1: stuff like that? We, we pretty much had an arrangement down, but but, you know, once we did it on the road, although from year to year, it would evolve a little bit, you know Uh, but based on what they had released to pop radio or to country, we didn't really necessarily change our arrangement. Based on that, but you know, th- when personnel changes, like when Nate came in, we did kind of reapproach the parts or whatever. Like a, a good example of that song. When I started, I was uh, I was just playing ganjo on that song, mm-hmm. and then after a couple of years of being there, um, Brian Nutter, who used to be there and play electric on that song, he left, and so then it was just me and Keith on guitars, and we had that guitar it's called the monster built which brian actually built uh, about a year after he had been off the gig but it's got an electric it's got a telly on the top and a ganjo on the bottom it's a double neck oh wow it allowed me on songs like that or somebody like you uh, a few of those songs that have pretty signature ganjo parts that i needed to play but also i didn't want to be stuck on a ganjo the whole song it allowed me to flick a switch and go down to electric or, or you know come up to electric and be able to play rhythm electric when Keith went up to solo. That way, I could still hold down the fort and play plenty of power and, and rhythm stuff, or, or twin him or whatever. Uh, and that kept us from having to be so dependent on track usage at, at, in those early days before you know everybody started kind of using a bunch of support tracks. Right, kind of fun. And I love the idea and the art of crafting a part and taking four or five parts from the record and coming up with a thing that can you you can do on the fly and you know, just a little more old school rock and roll, just let's play it, you know, instead of having a bunch of tracks and stuff.
0: For sure. Now we talked a little bit about your session work, Uh, 62 number ones and counting. Do you have any uh, songs that stick out to you? Uh, I mean, there's so many now, or like any ones that you were playing on that, like, while you were playing it, you're like, oh, this is going to be a smash.
1: Yeah. um, It's a good question. I still remember some of the the first Aldine stuff that I played on, that because those were some of the first number ones that I played on. I think "Relentless" was one of those. Um, My kind of party was a big one. Uh, "Dirt Road Anthem" was a big one. Um, uh, "Somewhere on a Beach" was was a, a that one is pretty memorable to me, particularly because that was one of the first that ended up going number one that I had done. A lot of stuff on just at my place, uh, the producer Ross Copperman, who who worked on that record. He and I have a great relationship and, and do a lot of work where he'll just send me a song that's that's been tracked with drums, bass, and a few guitars. And he'll just send it over to me and say, man, help me, let's finish this thing out. Just do your thing and, and put your magic on it. And, and so I'll add a few electrics, maybe some programming, some synths, and kind of finish it out and send it back to him and and see what he thinks. And usually he's like, yeah, it's great. You know, uh, so that one it was pretty memorable too, because that was one of the first ones that that went number one that I had been able to have a really, really kind of big, heavy hand in the the final stages of it, you know, which was pretty fun.
0: was there any songs that uh Ross or anyone else sent to you that you thought you were just playing on the demo and then your part ended up making the final track?
1: Oh, for sure, that's happened a time or two, yeah, <laughs> that's happened a time or two. I'm trying to remember one uh uh, of the examples in particular i feel like there was a a luke bryan thing a few records back that that yeah i had played on one version of it and then it ended up kind of being on the record as well yeah let's go now three-time
0: acm nominee for uh specialty musician of the year i know everyone says they don't do it for the awards but that's still super cool especially to be honored by all your peers uh how do you feel about winning that so many times
1: well it's it's pretty cool yeah yeah so I, I won i won the specialty category twice and i actually won in the guitar category and um and honestly the guitar one was one that like really kind of i was taken aback by just because there's so many there's not that not as many guys that do like the acoustic kind of utility type thing but when you're in a category of all the other guitar players that, that are so brilliant here in town, guys like Derek Wells or Adam Schoenfeld and uh, Rob McNally. And just, I'm just going to forget guys, but you know, like it's such a great crazy list of, of talent uh, to have uh, been able to win that one. is just like, what, what's a- No, I don't believe you. Something's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> now uh, coming out of Keith's band,
0: obviously you're on the road with Kenny now. How did uh, you and Kenny meet up?
1: So I actually started working with Kenny in the studio back in uh, 2014 ish, I believe Uh, like the, the American kids record, whatever record that was on. I started uh, working with him on, on his records at that point. And it played on everything since then. And so we had a really great working relationship. And once things kind of ended with Keith COVID happened and uh, nobody was touring or doing anything. And, and so once Keith went back out on the road, he had decided, you know, that he wanted to kind of lean more into the pop thing. And so added a track guy and and some of that kind of stuff. And so that was kind of like, he didn't want to have other guitar players on stage kind of thing is how I understand it. But so I was just in town doing session stuff at that point. And I signed a pub deal. So I'm, you know, writing and and getting into production work uh, in a more uh, tangible way than I have in the past. And so I was not really looking for any kind of road gig at this point. And they had to make a few personnel changes in Kenny's camp. And one of them was a a guitar player situation. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'd known Wyatt, his band leader forever. And and he calls me about the first of uh, this year in 22. And he's like, Hey man, I don't know if you even want to leave town or not, or if this would be on your radar, but you know, we're going to need somebody out with Kenny. And if you want it, the gig's yours you know kenny knows you we know it'll be a good fit so let me know if you want to do it let's do it uh and it was kind of like well yeah why wouldn't i do that when kenny calls (laughs) you you can't say no yeah right exactly um so it's like why wouldn't i want to go out and play 25 stadiums this year (laughs) football stadiums you know it's like of course right
0: (laughs) do you have a favorite song in the set that comes up every night that you're kind of looking at your set list and you're like this one's coming up i'm getting pumped
1: Uh, that's a great question. You know, honestly, American kids is one of my favorites that and setting the world on fire. Both are are really fun. Uh, because what's one thing that's really, I mean, obviously the crowd's awesome. The songs are great, but those for me are really the first time that I've ever, and a lot of the set here, it's the first time I've ever really been able to tour songs that I played on the recordings. Yeah. Uh, Like I, I really didn't play on that many recordings with Keith along the way because he played so many of the guitar parts. And uh, with Aldeen, uh, when I toured with him, although I've played on all the recordings since then, I wasn't when I toured with him. And so it's been kind of an interesting thing. that This is the first time that I've been able to tour songs that I've played on and had a hand in creating, which is a really cool, special thing. and doesn't happen that much when you're just a side guy, if you're not like in a band project, you know? So it's, it's, a, it's a pretty big blessing. I'm thankful for that. It's a lot of fun. Now, you did
0: Did you do the acoustic work on the American Kids record?
1: hmm Yeah. Because ever since you mentioned that, I'm
0: kind of geeked out because, uh, man, everyone knows that. Da, 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 da. Like, the intro to American Kids, that's just like, amazing. I mean, it's just chords, but everyone knows that when it comes on.
1: Yeah. On that one in particular, Kenny Greenberg and I were both doubling acoustics on the go down. And uh, so I was playing acoustic and he was playing acoustic and then i stacked the uh i think i stacked a bazooki in the choruses for a strum and then of course the ganjo hook which is pretty pretty signature kind yeah. of thing
0: that's so yeah. sick
1: now then, uh, one interesting thing about that one too when we got to uh the solo section that has the we hadn't even talked about me playing a banjo solo i just kind of went for it on the (laughs) when i was playing it and i was like i might be asked to to simplify this at some point (laughs) but but i did it and they were like "Ah, i loved it so (laughs) all right we'll keep it (laughs) that's sick
0: now i'd like to close all my interviews by asking my guests a piece of advice that you've learned kind of on your journey in music and something you would kind of tell a younger musician
1: oh that's a great one um You know, if I could give myself one piece of advice, uh, looking back, it would probably be to stop worrying so much about where I'm going or where I want to be or how I can get where I want to be and to focus more on how I can contribute and be a blessing where I am, you know, and then if you do that effectively, then that will lead to other stuff and just trust that the road in front of you will will be pleasing you know but just try to be present and contribute where you are you know well guys there
0: you have it my conversation with danny raider danny thank you again so much for coming on the show i had an awesome time talking with you everyone go follow him on instagram at Raider. and make sure to come back next week to hear my conversation with session keyboardist alex wright I'd like to give a big thank you to TBD Coffee Co. for being the official coffee of Starting Small Music. Check them out at tbdcoffeeco.com. Check out Starting Small Music on YouTube to see all the video content from my interviews. And also follow Starting Small Music on Instagram at Starting Small Music and let us know who you'd like to hear on the podcast next. And remember, everyone starts small.